This is Jim Fleming, and I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like to find out more about our Sunday School class or about Stewart Heights Baptist Church, you can do so at teachings.jim314.com. That's T-E-A-C-H-I-N-G-S dot J-I-M 314.com. Thank you for letting me speak. Thank you to Dave, because Dave was scheduled to speak, and as we drove back from Atlanta for a Valentine's Day get-together, we were talking about his lesson, and I kept popping in ideas, and I said, well, we could team teach it. And then he said, no, you could teach it. So I'm going to share some ideas and thoughts. And as we talked, I said, you know, I realized that I haven't taught a group of adults a Bible study lesson probably since we were at Stuart Heights the first time. Some of you know that we attended Stuart Heights back when it was a tiny church. It was um, about 70 to 80 members when we were first here in 92. I was the pianist. Um, Back then, Chris Coates um, was one of the first music ministers I worked with. And we taught a young marrieds and college and career class for a little while when we were first here for those first four years. And we went away for a while to another church, and then we came back. I teach children's choirs here. Some of you know that. And um, I've taught adults, um, done Awana training. But the last time I taught a Bible class was 94, so I'll get back into talking to adults. However, I did bring candy. I just can't get away from giving out treats, so be ready. Um, I guess you've been studying. I came one week, I think, for one of the IMs, but you can fill in those blanks and remind yourself of what's been covered already in the series. Um, John 6.35 was the first week, I am the bread of life. Second week, John 8.12, I am the... Third week, John 10.7 and 9, I am the door of the sheep. John 10.11 and 14, I am the good shepherd. And then John 11.25, I am the... Some of you weren't listening last time, apparently. Resurrection and the life. And then this week we're talking about John 14, 6, that verse that might be one of the first you memorized after John 3, 16, when you were growing up in Sunday school or if you were in Awana or any other club. And it is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So let's read the actual scripture in context with the question that came before it followed by Jesus' answer. John 5 said, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So anytime you look at Scripture, of course, you should look at the context surrounding. I think you've been taught that pretty thoroughly in this class. You shouldn't just take a verse out of context because that can get you in big trouble every time. So... Around what was happening was the disciples were sitting with Jesus at the table for the Last Supper, the Passover meal. Just before um, this question and a couple other questions of the disciples, Judas had been dismissed from the table already. Jesus had already given him the bread and indicated that he would betray him. Disciples, of course, didn't understand what was going on, but... So there were really, what, 11 disciples and whoever else was in the room there with Jesus. 
um, by the end of that weekend, Jesus was going to be crucified. What was about to happen makes John 14, 6 kind of a paradox. Um, by the way, Last Supper was your first blank for those of you who are really obsessive about making sure those blanks are all filled in. John 14, 6 is kind of a paradox because Jesus' way would appear to end through death on the cross. And that's your blank there. He would be betrayed and tried and convicted by liars. And then his body would soon lie lifeless in a tomb. So it's kind of ironic that he would tell his disciples, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And pretty soon, all of those things would come against him. His way would appear to end. A bunch of liars and crooks, because that's what a lot of those men who were in power at the time were, would take care of making sure he wouldn't have an influence anymore, or at least they thought. And then pretty soon, they were actually going to see his body taken down off of a cross with no life in it. Um, Dave would have gone into a very interesting and deep Greek discussion. I'm not so much of a Greek scholar. I didn't take a single bit of Greek. I take that back. This is full disclosure. When I was in middle school, I had a little boyfriend who was, for whatever reason, a very knowledgeable Greek scholar as he was 12 years old. And he taught me the Greek alphabet, and he taught me a few key phrases like, I love you in Greek. And um, that's pretty much the extent of it. But he was obsessive about it. So I understand very little about Greek. Dave took a whole course in it. But if you understand, in our language, we have the articles a and the that we use a lot in our language that we put before nouns. In Greek, they have one article, but it has 24 different uses, eight of which are the most commonly used. And the is the article that they use the most. But they have variations of that that mean different things according to how you use it. So in this case, um, the has a meaning of nothing else, like the only, like this is it. So when he said, I am the way, the truth, the life, he meant there ain't no other way. There ain't no other truth. There ain't no other life to say it in the southern vernacular. So um, I think that's very important. Now, this is a big controversial verse for people who don't want to believe that there's one way to God. They want to try to dig in and to put other meanings to it. But if you dig down to the deepest level, it's saying that this is the path and you should walk in it. Um, let's go on and look at um, a couple things. First of all, you should understand that the disciples had followed Jesus for three years. They'd given up everything. They had, as, as I think you had a whole series about all those apostles and where they came from and what their background was. Some of them followed Jesus for different reasons. Some of them thought he was the revolutionary who was going to bring complete order to the chaos of the government at the time. Others really were searching for meaning in their life. Others were at the end of their life. They were elderly and they were looking for something true to believe in. Um, did, did any of them truly understand that he was the son of God and what the full realm of his ministry was? No. And we can look back and look at the questions that they asked him. And, and we, we tend to laugh, right? We say, oh, they were so stuck on stupid. What was their problem? But the fact is, if we were sitting in that same context and that same time and dealing with the government of the time and the politics, 
and the poverty and everything else that was going on, we would have asked some of those same stupid questions. And they would not have been stupid. They would have been honest, heartfelt. I don't understand what's going on, Master. You need to tell me. So you need to understand that um, they didn't understand. They had heard him saying, I'm going to bring this peace. I'm going to bring this you know, life to you. I'm going to do all these things. But in chapter 14 of John, for the first time, he said, by the way, I'm not going to be with you much longer. I'm about to leave. And this was earth-shaking to them because they had followed him, given up everything for three years to, to walk around Galilee and Nazareth and all Judea. And they were giving everything up because they were believed they were going to see something amazing pretty soon. Like he was going to knock down the government or he was going to, like, they'd already seen amazing miracles. They, they knew there was something bigger to come and they didn't know what it was. And now he was about to tell them, oh, by the way, I'm, I'm about done here. And they hadn't seen that big something that they were expecting. So, of course, they started to pepper him with questions at this point. Um, there were big, four big questions asked at the Passover table after Judas left. Um, and Jesus started really talking seriously about the future and how things were about to change and he was leaving. The first was by Simon Peter. And these questions, I think, are very significant to this key verse of the passage, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And we'll talk about it as we go through. Simon Peter, um, in John 13, 36 through 38. Can I have someone read that? And um, yes, I'm going to be throwing candy to those people who read <laughs> verses today. So first person to find that, just jump right in. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Awesome. Go ahead. Okay. Peter the next said verse. to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you, Jesus answered. Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Awesome. So you can see that Jesus called him on it. Why did Peter say this the way he did? Well, he might have truly been saying, I'm, I, could, I would do anything for you, Master. But some of what we know about Peter, there might not have been such a spirit of sacrifice and humility there. I think there was still that struggle of who's the most important among the disciples going on. And Peter was trying to prove himself. And he was being a little bit of a bravado there, maybe, and saying, well, I'd do anything for you. He was the first one to pipe up and say that. That means he's a little more important than the others and makes him feel all puffed up. And actually, it shows a little bit of maybe how he didn't know himself. Because, and Jesus saw right through it and called him on it. And there's, um, that we're going to tie that later to the denial of what the truth really is. And Jesus would address that in the verse. The second question that was asked, and this is the one that precedes um, this verse, this I am verse, is the one I already read to you. And that is, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? So a little bit of doubt there, but a little bit of confusion on Thomas's part. So then the next person was Philip. John 14, 8, someone read that to us. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and you will be satisfied. All right, can you catch? There you go. Um, what's, what scripture translation was that? Um, living um, NLT. NLT. So it said, and be satisfied. Does someone have something else other than NLT? What is it? Content. Content. Sufficient. sufficient. 
I love the word content because that's a lot of what scripture teaches us about how we live our lives. So I think Philip was showing that, um, one, a little bit of doubt like Thomas had, but he also wasn't content. He had a lot of frustration inside. He couldn't live, he didn't feel stable at all. He felt unstable with all the stuff that Jesus was saying about leaving. And he was searching for something that would give him a grounding, that would make him feel safe. And I think Jesus um, responded to that through this verse. And then the last question later in the passage was by the other Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but you know, you, you learned when Jim taught this that there was another guy named Judas who had, I think, a couple other names, which I don't recall because I wasn't in this wonderful class then. Um, but John 14, 22 through 23, someone read that. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, Obey my teaching. My father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Absolutely. Okay, here's a long throw. There we go. Awesome catch. Um, so this is kind of an a why did he say this verse kind of question. Um, why did Jesus tell the disciples all this? Why didn't he just stand out on the hilltop in Galilee when he did the Beatitudes and say all this? And Jesus told them why. Because I want you to be the ones to go out and tell. I have a mission for you. You need to know the details so that you can then gently and carefully break it down. Now, did they understand that at the time? No. They didn't understand any of this at the time. But all these little bits and pieces he was planning in their heads would come to fruition later when they saw all the events unfold, mostly once they saw Jesus walking again after his resurrection. That's pretty much when it started to click for them. All right, so let's move on. Um, I find it interesting that all the responses, three of the responses Jesus gave to those questions, all pointed back to the verse, that key verse in this passage. And I found it, I told Dave this when we were driving yesterday, that Jesus answered three of those questions with one verse, even though some of the questions were before his answer and some of the questions were after his answer. So, I think it's great that Jesus has the answer to our question even before we ask it. That he is thinking ahead, that he's thinking before us, he's thinking as we're walking through something and he's thinking after. That one verse ties into all three of those questions. And then the fourth question gives us the why. Why should it matter that he's the way, the truth, and the life? Because we have something to do. And we're going to talk about that more. So I am the way is the first statement. It's, it's most likely the way that the articles in the Greek, I guess, go, that he said, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life, and that the last two supported the first one, that he is the way because he is also the truth and because he's also the life. So those two are kind of the foundation underneath the way. So let's talk about the way. He wanted, Thomas, when he asked the question, he had the end goal in mind, like all of them did. They were there three years. They wanted to see what this big thing was that he was going to do. So he wanted to know the end because he said, how can we know how we're getting to the end if you haven't told us what the end goal is? But Jesus refocused him. He said, basically, it's not about the end goal. It's about the process. It's about what we have to do to get there. So he, um, he said, there's one way, and you have to trust me that I am the way. 
There's a really great quote from the Expositor's Bible Commentary that I put a little bit of in your notes, but I'm going to read the entire thing, and I'll give you the blank so you know how to fill that in. But it says, Jesus did not counter Thomas's skepticism with an argument or a quotation drawn from memory or even a piece of scripture from the past. He responded with an authoritative assertion as the master of life. Jesus is the way to the Father because only he has an intimate knowledge of God, unmarred by sin. Jesus is the truth because he has the perfect power of making life one coherent experience irrespective of its ups and downs. Jesus is the life because he was not subject to death, but it made it subject to him. He did not live with death as the ultimate end of his life. He died to demonstrate the power and continuity of his life. Because he is the way and the truth and the life, he is the only means of reaching the Father. Jesus was not exhibiting a narrow arrogance. Isn't that what our culture wants to say? That how haughty of him to say that he's the only way to God. There's many ways to God. How many times have we heard that? Um, but this commentary says he's not exhibiting a narrow arrogance. Rather, he was making the only possible deduction from the fact that he, the unique son, was the sole means of access to the Father. So Jesus wanted Thomas to understand that they needed to trust what he was telling them. Did they understand it? No. Do we always understand what we're going through in life? Absolutely not. And, of course, retrospective is always easier, right? You can go back maybe 10, 15 years after a trial, and you can see maybe a little pattern of what God was doing in that. Sometimes, sometimes you can't, but most of the times God's gracious to us and gives us at least a little glimpse here on this side of heaven of why we went through something and what the end result would be. And Jesus was trying to build that in them. He said, Thomas, it's not about the end goal. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but my me. I don't need to tell you. He dodged the question. He didn't say, you don't need to know the end goal. You need to trust what's going on right now. So let's go on to I am the truth. And of course, each of these three things, these are key statements of the gospel. We could do a whole sermon on just one of them, just talking about what it means that Jesus is the way. I'm just giving you a little nugget because I only have until 20 till. So um, I am the truth. As I said a second ago, it's pop popular in our culture to state that truth is relative. That's your blank there, relative. Um, it's whatever you feel is the truth. And this permeates our schools and our colleges and our universities. Bethany's run into it a little bit, even at a school that, although not a Christian college, was founded on Christian principles. Um, she had a quite interesting semester last semester with a professor who wanted to really drive home to the class about Jesus being an anarchist and that he had this whole different agenda. But then when he asked the students to write papers regarding this subject and different aspects of it, he didn't want them to use scripture at all. He said, only deal with historical writings because scripture you can bend to the way you want to make your argument. And I mean, he, he really wanted, it was good for the students to think outside the box. But clearly, he didn't want truth to be hardcore. He didn't want it to be God's absolute word is the final authority. In fact, he didn't want them to use that as an authority at all when they wrote their papers. And that's kind of how our society wants to view things. What my truth is might not be what your truth is. That's not what God's word says. Um, Pilate even asked that question, didn't he? He said, what is truth? 
That's, that was still, even then, was a problem. People were confused about what was truth and what wasn't. Um, recently, we got to be a Nielsen family. How many have ever gotten to do that? Were you oh, good? Yeah, where you kept a little diary of what was on your TV every hour of the day. Even if the TV was on and no one was watching, you have to mark that. And the fun part is the last page, where you get to journal your thoughts about television in general and give your opinions. And um, that's kind of a good thing. I think we should give feedback to our culture to let them know what we want to see and what we don't want to see. But as payment, they actually do pay you to do it. And they sent five crisp $1 bills. I have one of them here. It was so crisp that I questioned whether it was authentically a $1 bill or not. And I don't know if you ever noticed, but the printing on a $1 bill is off-centered. Did you ever notice that? I had never noticed that. Apparently, it's meant to be that way. It's supposed to be slightly off-center. But because it was off-center, I thought, surely this is counterfeit. This is not real. So even what my opinion of truth was, was skewed. Looking at that bill and how crisp it was, and it didn't smell like money, and it didn't have all that wrinkly you know, feeling like the ones that are stuffed in my purse most of the time, my very neat purse. Thank you, Mr. Fleming. Um, he made fun of me last week because of the receipts and coupons I had left stuffed in my purse. So I didn't even know what truth really was. Now, people who work at a cash register, who are cashiers, who work eight-hour shifts every day, they get to know the feel of money. And the best cashiers know the touch. They can tell by touching it, this is not real. They can tell, they know all the details about, and it's hard to keep track because they do keep changing our money, but you know, the $5 bill, the $10 bill, they've added even more security features. So those um, cashiers know why, because they are exposed to the truth so much that they can tell a lie when it appears in front of them. And I think that's an important thing for us to remember. The more we're in with what really is truth, the more we spend time with God's true word, the more we recognize a false truth when it arrives. And um, I think that goes for whether it's what someone else says or what we say to ourselves. And we're going to talk more about that in a little bit. Um, the Hebrew term used in Exodus 34.6 is interesting. Can someone read that one? Caught you off guard. There's candy waiting. <laughs> Hebrews 34. Uh, sorry, it's Exodus, isn't it? Exodus 34.6. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. All right. Everyone's good catch this morning. Um, so when the Hebrew term was translated for this in the Septuagint, that was right around from what Dave has told me and other scholars, around the 3rd century B.C., I wasn't there then. Um, but it, when it was translated from that Hebrew into English, it was the word truth that means to be firm or to be sure. So I think that's an important foundation to know about truth, that it brings firmness, it brings security, it brings stability. Let's go to um, John 1, 14 and 17, which uses the same truth translated word. John the word 14. became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, and the glory 
as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Absolutely. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Okay. She's like, no candy. All right. Um, no, she just really doesn't think she could catch it. That's all it is. Yeah. Um, let's go on to... <laughs> I know you are. Let's go on to the next one, Romans 3, 4. Y'all jumping at once, waiting for someone else to read it. Romans 3, 4. Of course not. Even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. As the scriptures say about him, you will be proved right in what you say, and you will win your case for Absolutely. Someone catch it. Oh, he's going to duck so she can get it. Awesome. Oh, so close. First miss. So, Logos, the fact that Jesus himself is truth, is kind of talked about here in this passage. And the Apostle Paul wrote this, writing to the church at Romans. He understood the concept. Later, he also wrote, um, you know, when he said, every man is true, or every, God is true, but every man a liar. When he was talking about that, he was really trying to contrast, right, to show the difference between our natures as they stand and God's nature. And he, that was a key theme with Paul because he was writing to churches who were not doing the right thing. He was constantly like a father correcting them. And he had to constantly hold up the true example of truth to these churches to say, this is your goal right here. And you aren't meeting that goal. In order to meet a goal, you have to have something to shoot for. So he wanted to say, the logos, the truth, is what you should be shooting for. Um, we're going to see another contrast in John 8, 44. The reason I'm giving candy out is because when I was in Sunday school class growing up, you had to hand out slips of paper with the scripture passages on it, and you knew that that was your passage, and you had to wait till the time the teacher called for it. I was amazed the first time I came in this class, and Jim didn't hand out slips of paper. You all just jumped in. It's so impressive. So thank you for doing that. It makes the teacher's job easier, and I don't have to flip pages. Um, John 8, 44. You are the children of your father, the devil and you love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So here you go. So we see the contrast, another contrast, is Satan himself, right? Um, God is truth, and Satan's like, I'm going to be everything but that. However, he's very sneaky, because he doesn't always just outright lie. Satan sometimes uses the truth and uses accurate information for his own purposes. So this um, blank that you need to fill in is, truth is clearly not just correct knowledge. It also relates to how and to what end that knowledge is used. So he might take the truth and use it in a way that's going to hurt you or hurt others. Um, maybe you can think of the obvious, funny illustration that everybody always uses. You know, if I say, does this dress make me look too big behind? The husband knows to say, oh, honey, you look great. He would never say, actually, yes, that makes you look very large in the back. No, sometimes the truth should not be used um, to a certain end, right? Now, does he need to lie? No. But he also needs to know when to use the truth as the tool, as the sword, and when not to. If he big sale, he's going to focus on the money aspect. Yeah, 
So there's other things too. He might take the truth and maybe use it at the wrong time. So a lot of us struggle with making sure our weight is in the right zone. And he might whisper to you and say, wow, you are so overweight. And you're looking in the mirror and you, he might whisper to that to you. Well, it might be true. Maybe you are overweight. But Satan knows when to use that against us to make our self-image go down. And we don't need to listen when he uses the truth against us. He can also take the truth and twist it and take just a little bit and move it just enough that it looks good, but it isn't good. We have a friend who right now is involved in what I think is a cult. It um, talks about human potential. It keeps Jesus completely out of the picture. It talks about that you have everything you need for yourself inside yourself. And he insists, he wanted me to help him write a book, and I had to turn him down because I'm like, I can't even remotely help you write stuff that leaves Jesus completely out of the picture. I just can't do that. And he insisted, oh, no, I'm going to talk a lot about Christ in it, but all the literature that I've seen from this organization does not have anything about God in it. It's all about within yourself, you have everything you need. You don't need, everything is possible with you. And I'm like, last time I checked, there was a verse that said all things are possible with God. And leaving him out of it is a dangerous thing. So that's a way they twist the truth just a little bit. Well, actually a lot of it. Um, and pretty soon that person can become so overconfident in themselves that they left God out of the picture. Um, let's go on to the next one, John 3, 21. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. Oh, another drop. So it's um, truth is part of the glory that comes from the Godhood. It's a quality that reveals what our innermost being is, like what she said. Um, the things we do reveal if the truth is in us or not. By your fruit, you're going to know a person, right? So if the truth is inside of them, if you're living truth, if you are embracing everything God's saying, it's going to come out. If you aren't, the opposite's going to come out. Garbage in, garbage out. Truth in, truth out. Right? The next one, let's go to John 4, 23 to 24. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such worship and such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. There you go. Um, you give it away. So this one obviously for me has special um, meaning in this list because of my involvement in worship always um, and has been since I was uh, a little tyke, actually. I probably played in church the first time when I was in high school, probably 15. Um, I've led children's choir since I was 19. And so part of what I do here is to make sure that not just myself, but the people I'm working with are worshiping. Now, I can't control what the other people in my group are doing, but if one person is, is truly worshiping, that does tend to spread. If one person standing in a row of people in a pew decides, I'm going to really internalize what's going on here, and I'm really going to put myself into this worship experience, and I'm going to sing like there's no tomorrow, that spreads. You can't help but sing out when someone behind you is belting at the top of their lungs and they have their eyes closed and they're clearly not doing it for show You can and you see the tears running down their face. That spreads. And um, it's, 
I wish you could stand in my shoes sometimes. Now I'm on a soapbox, but I wish you could stand in my shoes and see what I see. People with hands in their pockets, and I can't understand that. The words to me are like hitting me upside the head, and clearly a person texting in the front row and a person with their hands in their pockets in the back row and two kids giggling. It's distracting. And that spreads just as much as a spirit of worship spreads. Okay, so we got to hurry. Let's go through. Um, let me just talk about the next references. I won't have us all read them. John 8.32 talks about the truth being liberating. Um, and Ephesians 6, which we all know as the armor of God chapter, um, is truth is our defense. In fact, it talks about the belt of truth. And you've probably heard studies about the armor of God and how the belt in Roman times was really a girding. It held your sword. So it held the sword of the spirit, the word of God, on your person. If you have God's word um, and you're going to use it as a weapon, you better have a truthful life to back it up. Because if you're a preacher and you're standing in the pulpit and you're living a second false life over here, the word of God that comes out of your mouth is not going to mean it as much. Now, will it go void? No, someone might still be moved because God's word will not go void. But it's going to be harder for a person in the pew to, to believe what the preacher says or any speaker or me if you see over here a second thing going on that does not match God's word. So that belt of truth that holds on the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, that protects the person has to be there. Without it, your armor has got a big chunk missing. Um, John 16 talks about truth being a quality of God's spirit. And John 17, where Jesus was praying for us. He was praying for his disciples then. He was praying for us. It talks about how truth is going to sanctify us and set us aside for his purpose, which kind of takes us into the next section. We have to just be honest and say, are we honest with ourselves so that our mission outward is going to be intact so that we can actually make a difference for God? So I am the life, John 10, 10. Let's have one more person read for one more piece of candy. John 10, 10. You might have covered this in a previous week. It might have gotten read along with your John 10, 9. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Have it to the full, or some people might have, have it more abundantly. I love that word, abundantly. When you think of that, it's like, it's like overwhelming. Everything poured on you all at once. Jesus had a purpose for coming. He wanted to seek and save the people who were lost, and he wanted us to have a full life. Does that mean we're going to be rich? That would be nice. Some churches teach that. We've been to them where they say, if you follow God, you're going to be blessed and you're going to be loaded with riches and then you can give it to us. That's not how it works. Now, the richness that we experience in God's abundant life is probably what a lot of people in poverty wish for. They think money is going to solve the problems, but it's not. It's the richness and fullness of having contentment in your life that's the key. Now, Philip was the one who asked that question later on. We remember we talked about Philip asking the question about the future. And his future was so unknown. He wanted that security of knowing, hey, just, you know, if you just show us God, then I'll feel secure about all this. And um, I think like Thomas, Philip wanted evidence. That's your last blank there under I am the life. 
I love this scripture in 1 Timothy 6. And I'm going to read the whole thing, even though we have basically no minutes left. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords the godliness with godliness, he is proud, knows nothing. He's obsessed with disputes and arguments over words. I'm going to jump to verse 6. It says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. So when we know truth, when we know the way, and we have accepted God's salvation, then we can have abundant life. They all go together. All three of those things Jesus was promising his disciples if they would just plain trust him. The key thought for how we live, and this is interesting, this was Dr. Jim Fleming. Have you ever come across him, Dr. Fleming? There's a Dr. Jim Fleming out there that's an amazing Bible teacher from Tennessee. And I found this quote by him. Authenticity of our message is tainted when the lives of the messengers are unattractive. So living our life in full abundance, living our life in truth, following God's way is important because of our mission. And we'll talk about that in application here. Point one of application. He himself is the way. And in addition, he is the lodging on the way and its destination. That was a priest that wrote that from years and years and years ago. That's our first application. Our second application about the truth. Jesus is truth. And his truth applied to us inside and out stabilizes us, like the belt of truth we talked about. Number three, Jesus gives abundant life, allowing us to fulfill our purpose and our mission to point others back to Christ. So what do we do about that? We need to rejoice in the security that Jesus gives us one path to the Father. And we can be confident to point others to that one path. Number two, practice truth, and it will set you free in thought and word and safely lead you to a consistent walk. I think of the verse, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord my strength and my redeemer, that's Psalm 19.4. That verse I've had in front of me for years. I had it when I was in high school. I had it on the wall of my bedroom. I think that is something we always should keep in front of us because words and thoughts make a huge difference when it comes to truth. And lastly, fully live with him as the center of your life. This allows you to live an abundant and contented life no matter what state you're in. And it draws others towards him, which is, after all, his purpose for us. He made us to glorify him. And then he gave us a mission to draw other people to him. Thank you. Thank you. And come get candy when you're done. Yeah, really great.